And I wonder how your trip was on the way to church today. You know, I can remember back when I was a kid, and I think I've shared this with you once before, and let me sort of dust off your memory bank. On the way to church on Sunday mornings in Brazil, many times when my dad was on a mission trip, much like we were on last Sunday, my mother still took us to the church that my dad was planning in a distant place from us on the other end of the town and so because we only had one vehicle we would often ride the city transportation the city bus that stopped right by my window multiple times a day I can remember as a kid still hearing that door opening and closing and people getting on and off I mean right there by my window that was over the garage that was the bus stop and so we would catch the bus there and we would ride it into town and when we got to town my mother and, and, and my brother and sister and I would get off the bus, and as soon as we step off the bus, if you remember, I've told you there were beggars who were lined up there. And uh, these beggars were lined up, and they would pick their sores, and they would expose their wounds because they believed that the worse they looked, the more money they would get from those who would step off the bus in the city center and then get on another bus to go to another place. And I remember as a child getting off the bus and seeing this line of beggars that was lined on the street, and we would look at them, but we would not see them. Because if you saw them, you would have pity on them and you would give them what they were there for. And as a child, I didn't have a lot of money. So you would, you would look at them, but you would not see them. And I remember that vividly. On our way to church, there were beggars. As we'd step on the bus, we would look at them, but we would not see them. I wonder how many people on the way to church this morning that we looked at, but we didn't really see. I don't know if you were at a stoplight on your way to church this morning or not, but sometimes I do, and I wonder as I see people coming and going at that intersection, whatever, I wonder where they're headed. I wonder what their needs are. I wonder what they're doing. I wonder where they're going. I wonder if they know Jesus. And in all fairness, I don't really run into too many people coming from my home here. I don't get out of the car or the truck, and I don't do anything. I don't interact with people. But I often wonder about the people that I encounter on the way to church. And I wonder how many people you and I pass every day who desperately need Jesus. We may look at them, but we honestly don't see them. Because if we saw them, we might be compelled to meet their need. And their need isn't what they think it is. Their need is spiritual, and they need Jesus. What we're going to see in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 today, is we're going to see where two men, Peter and John, two disciples of Jesus, are on their way to church. Now, they're not just on their way to church. They're on their way to a prayer meeting. Now, if you want to have a large attendance in a church, call for a prayer meeting. Seriously. About one-fifth of the church will show up. But you got to remember, these people had just received the Holy Spirit. They had just been filled with the Holy Spirit. They had just proclaimed the message Simon Peter did. 3,000 responded thereabouts to the gospel presentation and were being baptized in the process of that conversion experience. It takes a while to baptize 3,000 people, if you can imagine. More than likely, it wasn't done in all one service. It was done in multiple times. 
And so we see that, that now Peter and John are on their way, and as they're on their way to the place of worship to a prayer meeting, their journey is interrupted by a man who desperately needs more than what he's asking for. And we know the classic line that Simon Peter turns to the man who is there and he says, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And so let's take a look at that journey as we see it unpacked and unfold in Acts chapter 3. And what we're going to do today is we're not going to have any points until we get to the very end. We're going to have three points very quickly at the end. So let's just sort of unpack the verse together. In verse 1, we see now Peter and John. We see two likely companions. This, this, this encounter is, is an encounter that happens specifically with these two disciples. These two disciples have been together with Jesus from the very beginning. They were handpicked by Christ to be on the inner circle of the disciples. They were included together, these two, with James in some aspects about ministry that the others were not included in. They were handpicked and they were the core of the core. Peter and John are together once again and they have been countless times, not only during the ministry of Jesus, but at Pentecost and now following that time, they are inseparable and they are walking side by side as they are together going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Now notice that they were going into the temple. Why were they going into the temple? We know that according to, to, uh, to Acts chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, as we studied two Sundays ago, that they had a habit of going back to the temple to gather with the new converts. As you can imagine, there's, there's not really any place for these thousands of people to gather together in one place. And so they are gathering on a regular, a daily basis inside of the temple courts. Now, some believe that they were going to still pray following the sacrifice. But I'm of the belief that they're still using the temple court because they're allowed to do so. Because hostility and oppression has not yet come to the church. And so there's that lull, that's that, that intermission time before the pressure and the heat is about to be pressed down upon the church. And they're going to be forbidden to meet in the temple courts. But for now, they're meeting there on a regular basis with not only the hundred but with the thousands who are coming to faith in Christ and they're meeting there on a regular basis. And I believe that, that Peter, and John, uh, Peter and John are on their way into the temple court to meet with the new converts for prayer. It's a time of discipleship. It's a time of prayer. It's a time of getting together. And it's also a time of encountering others who possibly might have not yet trusted Christ. And I can imagine they're being introduced to other worshipers who are there who worship Jehovah, but not yet Jesus, who are being introduced to the gospel. So we see Peter and John going through the the temple to worship at the hour of prayer at 3 p.m. Verse 2, and notice the description of the person of interest in verse 2. And a man, lame, with, lame from birth, was being carried from was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate of the gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Notice there is a man described. He's a man. He's an adult. This is not a young boy. This is not a child. This is a man. Uh, and the reason why I think it's important to understand this man is, is men have great pride. We have great honor. We have great dignity. And as a result of that, notice that this man doesn't have those things because he is described as someone who is lame. That means he is someone who is 
paralyzed from his waist down, more than likely. He is not able to use his legs nor his ankles, more than likely. He is lame. Notice the time period in which he is in this condition. He has been lame from birth. From the time that he was born, by the time he was brought into the world, from that very beginning, that very point of life, he has been lame his whole life. And now he is an adult male, and his whole life has been characterized. It has been... It has been molded by this, this infirmity that he is being dealt with. This lame man from birth now is being carried. I imagine how humiliating that must be for a man with a lot of honor and pride and dignity, not being able to provide for his family. He can't even carry himself. And the only way to get to the place where he is stationed every day is to have someone else pick him up and carry him to that location. So he is being carried every day, notice, laid daily at the gate of the temple. They lay him there every day at the same spot by the entrance at this gate to the temple every day. Now, I can imagine one of the main reasons why he's being laid there every day, because you can imagine if he missed one day, that was a prime spot. (laughs) And if he missed that next day, guess who's going to fill that spot? Another beggar. And so he has to be there every day at the same time. That is his designated spot. He is there every single day being laid at the gate of the temple. Why the gate of the temple? That is a prime spot because, as you can imagine, those who are going in or through the gate or into the temple are passing him by. And what better people to to ask for alms or ask for assistance are those who are going in and out of the place of worship. More than likely, they have a heart. They have compassion. They're connected to God, and they're there to worship God. And if there's anybody that's going to give you anything, it's those who worship God. And so he is placed there strategically. That is his place, and he is asking for alms for those who are going in and out of the place of worship because he believes that he's going to get more money from those people than he would those possibly who are getting off the bus in a downtown bus depot who are heading to who knows where. So he's there at the temple and notice he is asking for alms. He's a beggar. Have you ever had to ask anyone for assistance? It is, it is a humiliating thing, isn't it? But if you can imagine being paralyzed from your waist down your entire life, not being able to supply financially for your family, if you have one, and the only livelihood he has is to stay at that place, at his post, every day, catching men and women, boys and girls, who are going into the place of worship, into the courts to worship God. And see, we have this man who is described in this graphic sense because every day he is being placed at this spot, forced to beg for his livelihood. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. He notices, notice, he notices Peter and John coming in to the temple to worship. Now, if you can imagine being a beggar, sitting at this strategic place at this point your whole life, you begin to size up people pretty quickly about who has and who doesn't have financial means to give you. Can you imagine? You would probably look at what they're wearing. You'd probably look at their shoes. You'd probably look at their, their demeanor. More than likely, you, you might even look at their face because you want to make sure that you ask for alms of those who you believe have some spiritual quality about them that is being reflected in their countenance. 
I don't know if it was the clothes that they were wearing. I don't know if it was the countenance that they had on their face that day. But for whatever reason, we see that he sees Peter and John as they are going into the temple to worship. And he asks for alms. He asks them for money. Why does he ask them for money? Because he believes the money is his primary need. Isn't that the world that we live in today? Primarily what they believe is their main need. I don't really need Jesus. I need money. I don't know of very few times. Back me up here, Brother Gail. Has anybody ever come to the office during the week and asked to know Jesus? Two times? Against millions of other times of people who come to the church and what do they want? Financial help. They're not looking for Jesus. Why? Because people believe that what I need more than anything else is more money. And so his primary need, he believes, is financial. Notice verse 4. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. Notice, Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. They fix their eyes on the man. I wonder how many times... When we don't know this for sure, but do they go into this gate to the place of worship and prayer and praise to meet other believers and they may not have seen him? Or maybe they looked at him, but they didn't stop to minister to him. Now, what our guys learned on this trip for the past week, I am the pastor, but I am not perfect. Amen, guys? Thank you, Robert. I'm praying for you, Addie. You're welcome. They're not perfect men. And this isn't their first time to go in and out of this gate. And this man has been there the whole time. And now this man asks for alms, and they stop and they look at him, and they look at him with intention. They see him. They don't just look at him, but they see him. They see a man who is crippled from life, who has been at this gate his whole life begging for alms, and they not only see him and his physical need, but they see his spiritual need. This is a divine encounter. This is the moment of opportunity that they seize to be able to minister to a man who asked them for help. And they are keenly aware because they have not only received the Spirit, but they have been filled with the Spirit. And as they're walking past this gate, he engages with them. And then they turn and they not just look at him, but they see him. But they see more than just a man who is lame. They see more than just a man who needs financial compensation. They see more than just a man who is spiritually in need of Jesus, but they see that this is the opportunity that possibly they have been waiting for, for this interaction to begin, and they seize the moment. And they direct their gaze at him, as did John. Peter and John both look at him and said, look at us. They see him, but they want him to see them. I want you to look at me don't just look at me as someone that's going to provide for you financially, but I want you to listen to what I'm about to say because what I'm about to say is going to change your life. Notice verse 5. 
And he, the lame man, fixed his attention on them. He is directing his attention on them. But notice, it helps us understand why he's fixing his attention on them. Because he's expecting to receive something from them. Why is he looking, why is he locking on them? Because he is expecting that he is going to get some financial compensation from them. He's going to get some money. And he needs money more than he needs anything else. And he's expecting to receive some financial compensation from them. But this man's about to get more than he expected. Notice what happens in verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold. I have no silver or gold. Can you imagine being a man who's been begging your whole life and you've locked in on two possible victims or two possible candidates that are going to compensate you, who are going to give you some financial gain, some financial compensation, and you hear the words, I don't have any silver or gold. I wonder if that really set in. I don't have any money to give you. I've targeted the wrong guys, he must have thought. I mean, I saw in their countenance that they were men who love God and are here to worship God. I looked by what they're wearing, that maybe they have financial means. And now all of a sudden, this guy is telling me he doesn't have any right. I hear that all the time, buddy. But really, they didn't. But they have no financial means they have no silver or no gold but notice he said but what i have you what i have i will give you but what i do have i give to you he was willing to give him what they had what did they have that he didn't have they had jesus what I have, I'm willing to give. I don't have silver and gold, but I have something that you need, and I'm going to give you what you really need. You think, dude, what you need is silver and gold, but I'm going to give you something more valuable, something that is deeper than that need. I'm going to give you what I have. I'm going to give you Jesus. Now, keep in mind that you cannot give anyone Jesus unless you have Jesus. Unless you know him, you can't lead other people to know him. Unless you have him, you can't share him. And they had Jesus. And so they're about to give him Jesus. And notice then his next statement, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He pleads then the name of Jesus, the divine power and the divine authority of Jesus is being invoked into the situation. And he uses the name Jesus because the name of Jesus carries all of the authority and all the power of the one in which that name represents Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So that there's no mistaken identity as to who this is. This is the Christ who lived a perfect sinless life, who died on the cross and who was buried in a grave, but rose from the dead three days later and now lives. And in the name of Jesus, that Jesus and all of the characteristics and the qualities and the nature of the man named Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I command you. This is not a prayer. This is not a request. This is a command. 
He's not asking for Jesus to do this. He is commanding that this be done because we see that as he does this, he is acting in Jesus' place. He is acting in the power of Jesus, and he is delegating the purpose or the will of Christ. This is God's will for this man's life is to be saved. It is to rise up and walk. And he is invoking the name of Jesus and all of the power and the authority that comes with the name of Jesus to rise and walk. There's incredible power in the name of Jesus. And I think today we have a tendency to diminish the power that's in the name of Jesus. Or just the mention of his name changes everything and transforms lives. Verse 7. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. He, Peter, took him by the right hand and raised him up. I I think what Peter is doing, and there's some discussion about this and some debating about this, but I've concluded that I think while, while Simon Peter is saying to this man, and John's standing next to him, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And by the way, the word... Rise and walk is one word in the original because you can't walk unless he rises first. So he rises up and walk. And as he's saying that, he reaches down and he grabs him by the right arm and he pulls him up. It is a simultaneous action. There's not any delay. And he reaches down to lift him up. And noticed, notice what happens. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. I mean, the guy's not standing yet. And he's reaching down and he's grabbing him to lift him up. And at that very moment, instantly, supernaturally, this man has now legs by which he can stand on. Immediately, his feet and his ankles were made strong. There's no delay in the transforming work of the Spirit of God when the name of Jesus is invoked on a person's life. Immediately, he became strong. Notice verse 8. And leaping up. You see, that helps me understand that, that, that Peter didn't, didn't bring him up. He leaped up. I mean, if you can imagine his whole life, he's never had legs like this. And he leaps up. And I, I can't help but mention, as I, as I have as a grandfather and, and as a father, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an image of this, this tiger who leaps a lot. Who knows what I'm talking about? Tigger. I mean, he just walks around and he leaps everywhere. You know what I'm saying? This guy's kind of like Tigger now, and he's going to be like this from now on in, in the passage. He's going to be leaping everywhere. And he's just a bouncy dude, and he's leaping around, and he's, he's, he's leaping up. He himself is leaping up, and he stood and began to walk. Can you imagine an adult male who has been paralyzed his entire life and his waist down, has been carried everywhere by everyone, humiliation, no honor, no respect. And now all of a sudden he's walking. He's not only walking, but he's leaping. And he can't stop. He can't help himself. He is leaping up. He stood up and he began to walk. And notice what happens. And he entered into the temple. Some believe that he'd never been into the temple because he was unworthy to go into the place of worship because of his physical condition. And he enters into the temple with the disciples. With them. 
It was once just Simon, Peter, and John. And now it's this no-name guy who, had lep- who was lame his whole life. And all of a sudden, they're walking, the three of them, into the place of worship. And this, this guy's leaping, you know. Uh, Larry and, and Paul would probably escort this guy out. There are our guys who keep watch over our facilities during the worship services because this guy's got to be on something. But he's just constantly leaping and he's walking and he's praising God. What's coming out of his lips and his mouth? Glory to God. Thanksgiving, praise, honor, and glory to the one who healed in verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. I mean, I can imagine if someone came in here leaping, everybody would look at that guy who's leaping, and everybody looked at him. There's a guy who's leaping. He's not only leaping, but he's praising God. And they began to check him out and look at him and said, oh, I know who that is. Notice it says in verse 10, and they recognized him as the one who had sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. They recognized that this is the guy who's been sitting at that very spot in that prime location for years asking for alms. And now he is up walking and he's leaping and he's praising God. And they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. All were filled. Not just a few, but all were filled with wonder and amazement at the transforming work of the Spirit of God in the heart and the life of this man's condition. It's interesting that uh, there's a story as we close about Aquinas as he's walking with the Pope through the halls of, of the great edifice they call the, the church there in Rome. And I've been there, and it's, a, one of the large, it's the largest church I've ever seen in my life. I've been to Rome, and I've, I've been to the church. And so uh, he is walking with the Pope through the halls and seeing all the, the lavish, eloquent, massive wealth that the church has accumulated. And and they go into this place, and the Pope is counting these large sums of money. And he looks at Aquinas, and he says, The church can no longer say, Silver and gold have I none. And he turns to the Pope and says, And neither can we say, Rise and walk in the name of Jesus. I agree with the first statement that the Pope made. I believe that the church today is the wealthiest, wealthiest church that the church has ever had in the history of the church. Now, that doesn't mean that Emmanuel's a wealthy church, but I mean, but look what, what we're worshiping in. I look at those of us who worship here. We're the wealthiest Christians that the church has ever seen in the history of the church. And while it is true that we more than likely can say silver and gold have I none because more than likely many of us are wearing gold and silver on our bodies as I speak. I contend with the reality that he says and neither can we say in the name of Jesus rise and walk. Because I believe we can still say that today. I believe that is still available 
to us today. And you ask, well, how can we do that? Are you being charismatic? Are you being Pentecostal? No, I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that name in which we use when we project and proclaim the power that comes to the gospel of Jesus in which people then place their faith and trust in him and those who were can rise and walk, can be transformed by the power of the name of Jesus. And so there's three points that I want to close with as we come to the close. There's power in the name of Jesus. Do you believe it? Do you really believe it? I think sometimes those of us who are believers have, have, have gotten to the point where we, you know, we, we, we really take lightly the name of Jesus. We fail to recognize and we fail to understand the power in the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus has not lost its power because Christ has not lost his power. And when we mention his name, when we invoke his name, when we bring his name to our lips into a circumstance and into a situation, that name brings in the presence, the purpose, and the power of Christ, and it can change any and every situation and any individual in which they place their faith and trust in Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus, and we need to believe it. We need to release it. Peter and John walked by this gate numerous times. And it wasn't until they invoked the name of Jesus into the, this man's circumstance was he then saved from his human condition and entered into the place of worship, giving honor and glory to God the Father through the healing power that happened to him in the name of Jesus. I wonder how many people that you pass every single day of your life you look at them, but you don't see them. You look at them, but you don't really see them. How many opportunities have we forfeited because we have not released the powerful name of Jesus as we have spoken his name to those who we see, who are desperately in need of more than just the trivial things that are temporary in this life but who need the eternal through the name of Jesus and then lastly maybe you need to receive it today to receive it it's available it's here it's real it's as available today as it was then and if you will just simply admit your sin and ask for forgiveness and call upon the name of Jesus like this man who was lame his entire life your life can be transformed by the name of Jesus let's pray